The Guardian. In the early 1980s, a man named Warren Samuels began collecting documents that mentioned the phrase, the invisible hand. Books, journal articles, um, newspaper articles, cartoons, anything that mentioned the invisible hand. When he first took up the project, Warren Samuels was a professor of economics at Michigan State University. He noticed that both the governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher regularly invoked this idea of an invisible hand. That's Adam Smith's theory that markets can self-regulate themselves, and which later became the founding justification for laissez-faire economic philosophy. Warren Samuel's initial plan was to use this concept of the invisible hand as the basis for a book about the role of government in the economic system. The only problem was he couldn't stop collecting. When he retired in 1998, he was still at it. His wife was enormously tolerant and uh, supportive in all of this. Uh, He took over first their basement uh, when they lived in East Lansing. And then later when they moved to Florida in his retirement, uh, he took over the garage and then one guest bedroom and then the second guest bedroom. Marianne Johnson was one of Warren Samuel's final students in the mid-1990s. And last year, as he struggled with Parkinson's, he asked her to help him finish what had become his life's work, a book about the myth of the invisible hand. He worked so hard uh, finishing this, and it really took a lot of his energy and effort uh, toward the end. This was something that he just had to do. Warren Samuels tragically passed away last August, just weeks before Cambridge University Press published his book, Erasing the Invisible Hand. At the heart of Samuels' book is a question. How does a concept like an invisible hand come to dominate the scientific discipline of economics? Economics is the only field where uh, practitioners pride themselves on having something invisible as a foundational concept. And he thought this was just a wonderful puzzle. It was the philosopher Adam Smith who gave birth to the idea of the invisible hand, even though he only mentioned it three times in his writing. The first instance, in his book The History of Astronomy, is considered to have no bearing on economics and thus generally is ignored. But for Warren Samuels, it was one of the keys to solving the puzzle of the invisible hand. If you look at the first use of the invisible hand in Smith's essay in The History of Astronomy, he talks about uh, how people uh, need to have concepts or ways of organizing the world that will put their mind at rest and soothe their imagination. And the invisible hand is one of these things that can kind of wave away some of the difficulties in explaining uh, what's observed in the real world. And so what Warren really liked about the history of astronomy and the use of the invisible hand there is because he felt uh, Smith's idea of science was the way to, you know, soothe the imagination. Hmm, let me think, think about that one. Emin Butler went blue in the face when I asked him if the invisible hand could be thought of as a soothing balm to explain forces beyond man's comprehension. I don't think the invisible hand is, is a doctrine of faith. But that's understandable, considering Emin Butler is one of the founders of the Adam Smith Institute, a conservative think tank committed to spreading the gospel of the free market. For Emin Butler, the key to understanding the invisible hand is Smith's third reference to the term in his 1776 book, The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith says that if you allow people to trade freely, then you get, as if by an invisible hand, a very 
uh, beneficial social outcome. And this is a very novel idea. That if you let people get on with their own lives, in, in, in trying to improve their own life, they also improve life for other people. And that's the, really the idea of the invisible hand. Uh, and this comes through every page of, of, of his book. Now, Adam Smith, in fact, mentions the invisible hand only once in The Wealth of Nations. Emin Butler sees it on almost every page because he says Smith illuminates the invisible hand in the stories and parables he tells about markets. Smith takes the example of the ordinary woolen coat that is worn by a humble, poor uh, worker. And he says that uh, to manufacture that coat actually requires the effort and enterprise of thousands of people. Uh, there are shepherds who grow the wool, uh, weavers, uh, carders, dyers, spinners, tool makers, carriers, people who make the tools. Adam Smith was convinced he discovered a force, an invisible force that not only coordinated all of the diverse economic activity, but more so drove this collective activity. For Emin Butler, this is the invisible hand of the market. They don't do it uh, because they want to produce a woolen coat for a particular worker, they do it because they benefit from the whole enterprise. The invisible hand is, is a way of explaining how what would seem to be self-interest, and some people would even say greed, actually produces a beneficial um, social outcome. But this idea that the invisible hand works in the interests of society through individuals working in their own interest is perhaps better stated by Adam Smith in his second mention of the phrase in an essay he wrote in 1759 called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. He wrote, The rich consume little more than the poor, and in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, though they mean only their own conveniency, though the sole end which they propose from the labors of all the thousands whom they employ be the gratification of their own vain and insatiable desires, they divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants. And thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. It's the old trickle-down theory, which is that the very rich will employ lots of people making their baubles or sewing their carpets or hoeing their fields, and that the wealth will spread out. Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee prefers to use slang when referring to this theory. And she says there's overwhelming evidence that proves the trickle-down theory is rubbish. In the U.S., in the U.K., in the last 30 years, the story has been irrefutably trickling up. The wealth has been sucked from the middle and below and accumulated in the top 1% of unbelievably rich people who've consumed the wealth from the tables of middle, middle income and below families. For Polly Toynbee, the only reason this idea still has any political power is because governments cower before the rich. We have a government that's transfixed with terror that the rich might leave this country, that uh, our wealth, though it turned out to be a bubble, and our growth of the last 15 years was because London was the great magnet for international jet-setting global wealth, so we let them pay virtually no taxes, not even on the massive properties they brought. The fear of the flight of the rich uh, 
dominates governments. But for Emin Butler and other disciples of Adam Smith, taxes and regulations placed on the wealthy or on industry keep the invisible hand of the market from functioning properly. And this is why they are ideologically opposed to them. If you allow uh, industries to self-regulate, then the system will work. But it won't work if it's over-regulated from the center. The Great Crash of 2008, Emin Butler argues, is an example of what happens when regulations interfere with the invisible hand of the market. A lot of people's faith in markets was uh, um, given a knock by the financial crisis, and that's perfectly understandable. But I think that uh, people are now realizing that what we had was a banking sector which was hugely regulated. It wasn't the case that there was too little regulation. There was plenty of it. People say that there wasn't enough regulation, but that's completely wrong. If you're inside a myth, it seems like fact. The philosopher John Gray, like the economist Warren Samuels, is also fascinated by the myth of the invisible hand. He says free market ideologues like Emin Butler still cling to this myth, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that the crash was caused by unregulated markets spinning out of control because myths have more power than facts. So, I mean, one of the things one can learn from the history of ideas is that Myths of this kind are never abandoned because they're refuted. They're never abandoned because they're obviously false. They're only abandoned when the uh, structures of power that sustain them in society become dislocated and then those who hold to them simply become ridiculous. But in promoting this myth of the invisible hand, John Gray says, Adam Smith's disciples fail him. The original version of the idea of the invisible hand in economic life is, of course, found in Adam Smith. But it's quite different from what it later became because one of the key insights that's been forgotten about markets, an insight that Adam Smith had but his disciples have lost, is that markets are like all other human institutions. They're prone to go mad from time to time. They're no more uh, uh, perfect, no more rational, no more liable to regulate themselves than any other human institution. And if you start from that basis, uh, which Smith did, um, you might still favor a market economy, as he did, but you would favor it in a full awareness of its defects and limitations and of the fact that it needs an awful lot of infrastructure, legal and moral, for it to work properly. The world is still reeling from the market failures of the past few years. But for John Gray, the real failure was one of thinking. And a failure of thinking, he warns, always comes with grave consequences. Because this myth of the self-regulating market, the invisible hand, has, has hit the buffers, all kinds of new movements are, or old new movements under new forms are emerging, and many of them are toxic xenophobia, hatred of internal and external minorities, anti-Semitism, the classical toxic poisons. That's what always happens, or tends almost invariably to happen, when a ruling myth of this kind, in this case a sort of secular myth of economic improvement, is not intellectually challenged but uh, shaken by events. I think the one thing we can be sure of is it wouldn't be uh, a rational rebirth of social democracy.
for The Guardian's Big Ideas podcast. I'm Benjamin Walker. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.